This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. In Denver, white middle-class families are buying homes in what have been traditionally minority neighborhoods. But when it comes to sending their kids to school, they're choosing schools outside of those neighborhoods. Joining us is Melanie Asmar, who wrote a story about this for the education website Chalkbeat. And Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So families are moving into these neighborhoods um, because the housing is more affordable. Um, But school's different. Why are families rejecting neighborhood schools? I think families in Denver, uh, a lot of them, all sorts of families, use the district's school ratings to make school choices. Um, And and schools um, in... uh, traditionally um, uh, lower income neighborhoods um, sometimes are have lower ratings than um, schools in wealthier neighborhoods. And I think sometimes parents look at the rating and get nervous. Um, I Some parents I spoke to also worried that their child would be a minority in school, that they might be the only white child in their class. And, and they expressed concerns about that. Um, So court-ordered busing to integrate Denver schools ended in the mid-90s. And a decade ago, Denver moved to the school choice approach where families can choose schools outside of their neighborhoods. And it was meant to encourage integration. But in this situation, it seems to be having the opposite effect. The the busing does? The fact that now they can choose to go to a school outside their neighborhood, which is sending them into a more segregated situation um, and having the kids remain, you know, minority kids remain in those neighborhoods. Yeah, I think that that the district um, wants integrated schools. Uh, they have um, had a, a committee that uh, looked at ways to integrate the schools. Um, but at the same time, the district has um, a school choice policy that allows parents to uh, choose any school they want. And sometimes I think those two things can work against each other. And it's especially uh, happening in gentrifying neighborhoods where there is the potential um, for natural integration. Right. And yet... Uh, that's not happening. Parents are sort of self-selecting um, out of the neighborhood. And earlier this year, um, the school district sent a survey asking parents how they choose schools for their children. Uh, what stood out to you from these responses? I imagine you guys sent it out. Is yes, right? we sent out the okay. survey. Yep. Um, yeah. So we asked a question specifically about the role of diversity and uh like the student population, you know, as a parent, when you're looking at schools, um, what do you look at? Do you look at test scores? Do you also look at, um, you know, the um, demographics of the students who go to those schools? And we got a lot of responses from parents um, saying, yes, diversity really matters to us. Um, and yet um, uh, a lot of those the parents that we spoke to said, you know, diversity matters and everybody wants more integrated schools. And yet there are these other factors that we can that we consider as well or, we, you know, we, our friends consider. We know people consider um, as well. And sometimes those factors end up sort of trumping um, diversity, like folks um, end up being more concerned about test scores or more concerned um, about other things. So they say they value diversity. Um, is this really about test scores and academics, or could this be about a broader concern? Um, one black education professor was quoted in your article, and he suggests parents fear having their kids in these schools. What does he mean by that? 
yeah, I think that um, you know some some parents again said you know I I don't um, I I looked at the uh, demographics and I saw that it was ninety percent um, uh, children from low income families and that made me nervous. Um, you know, I, I worried would those children um, have experienced trauma that may affect their behavior that would in turn affect my child's um, learning environment. And I think, um, you know, some parents readily admitted, like, you know, the, these might be some of my biases playing out. Um, and yet it's really hard for me to make a choice that I think might be against in the best, not in the best interest of my own child. And so, you know, here's the ideal. And yet when I'm faced with that choice, it's difficult, uh, is I think a lot of what I heard. And yet uh, in your article, you point out that research shows integrated schools boost test scores for students of color and for students from low socioeconomic backgrounds um, without lowering the scores of students from wealthier ones. Um, How does that work? Yeah, I think that that um, that is what the research shows, and yet uh, I'm not sure that when parents are are making these decisions, they're necessarily um, looking at that sort of research, or you know, um, that might go against sort of people's gut reactions. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that that there's a lot of factors that play into how parents choose schools, and I'm not sure that that educational research is is high on the list. Um, but but sure, that is definitely um, there's research that shows that those fears may be uh, unfounded. One family that did make the choice to invest in their neighborhood school um, is Brian Hilbert and his wife. They live in Denver's Villa Park neighborhood, which is largely Hispanic. Brian was just a single guy looking for a house when he moved in in 2013. A marriage and two kids later, Hilbert and his wife decided, um, you know, had to decide where to go to school. And uh, they had to spend some time making a decision on where to send Hazel to preschool. There's a ton of room for angst. I think any parent feels like negative about the idea of kind of taking a chance, like putting their kid at risk. If we went to like a nice school, maybe they should get bullied for like not being the wealthiest kid or something like that. So basically, Hilbert's saying there are negatives and positives to any choice. And he sees potential risks in sending Hazel to a low-income school. At the same time, he says at a wealthier school, she could be bullied or feel left out because there are wealthier kids there. Um, The choice came down to Eagleton, uh, about a block and a half from their home, and Lincoln School, which would require a commute of close to 30 minutes. They eventually chose Eagleton, um, but they were nervous about it. In my ideal world, we would all have really great neighborhood schools with similar education models, and our kids would all get fairly equivalent educations. A lot of kids in the neighborhood have some kind of disadvantage on the face of it. We were a little like concerned that she might not get pushed as much as she otherwise would have in a different environment. So he says, ideally, all schools would be strong academically. You know, why isn't that the case? I think that's a, a million-dollar question right. um, that <laughs> um, school districts across the country are trying to solve. I think um, there there tend to there can be a big difference in resources that schools have. One that's one thing that that parents often point to um, at schools in wealthier neighborhoods in Denver. They have very active um, PTOs that can um, hold, you know, very sort of fancy um, auctions and uh, raise 
uh, several hundred thousands of dollars, which they uh, often use to hire um, uh, teachers' aides or additional staff for the school, um, and and that kind of thing can make a big difference in a classroom. Um, yeah, I think that that uh, you know at the upper grades, high school, middle schools, um, oftentimes students in some schools are coming in several grades behind. Um, and and it, the school has to then catch them up. And at other schools, they're coming in at grade level, and they can uh, work to advance those kids. So it's um, yeah, there's there's big disparities across it, the city. I mean, is this a question of where teachers want to work too? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, uh, sort of schools with with lower ratings, and the ratings are largely based on on test scores. And of course, there's a whole debate about whether that's the best way to measure um, the quality of a school, but. Schools with lower ratings often have more um, novice teachers, more first-year teachers, uh, and and the best-rated schools often have um, veteran teachers and teachers with high sort of effectiveness ratings. So there is a disparity there as well. So the district has launched an effort to get families to try out their neighborhood schools, as Hilbert has. Um, has that had any effect? So the district's done a couple of things to sort of um, – increase integration and and not necessarily um, and some of those things actually aren't encouraging folks to to go to their neighborhood schools so in some cases it's encouraging folks to make a different choice but um, yeah so they've done this thing called enrollment zones which are basically like big school boundaries uh, with several schools in them thinking like if you cross neighborhood lines you're gonna you're gonna naturally get more integration if you draw that boundary circle bigger you're gonna encompass more neighborhoods Um and uh, that has made uh, uh, some difference in some neighborhoods and in others it hasn't because, um, you know, parents are still sort of self-segregating within those even bigger boundaries. Um, the district also has a pilot program where it's set aside seats at more affluent schools um, for low-income students. And um, that has, again, had made a difference at some schools, but at other schools it hasn't because those more affluent schools are sort of all filled up with students from the neighborhood. And so there may only be five open seats. And so, um, you know, five students from low-income families get in, but that doesn't really make a difference difference in the bigger picture. Um, Yeah. One person you cited in your story was Antoine Jefferson. He's an African-American parent who's an education professor at DU. Um, uh, actually at the University of Colorado, Denver, and he had some thoughts about this subject. I believe and and feel strongly that uh, sort of neoliberal, left-leaning, middle-class, English-speaking whites who move into a city like Denver because it's a cool, trendy, hip, pot-friendly, uh, exciting, outdoorsy kind of city, that... There's a rubber meeting the road kind of issue when it comes to the decisions that they make for their own children's well-being. We just have a minute left, but I just wonder, um, you know, are these affluent parents not really putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak? Yeah, I think that um, the parents I spoke to did speak about this tension where, you know, my my political views, you know, um, would say that that diversity and integration is great. And yet that means that I, um, you know, am, am choosing a school where, um, yeah, the, the test scores are lower and, um, you know, where my child 
maybe a minority. And um, yeah, they're having to overcome those um, those fears. And, and I think that a lot of parents um, aren't able to do that. One more quick question. Has DPS considered ending school choice uh, that if parents had to keep their kids in neighborhoods where they live, um, there might be that extra push to make the schools better? I, I don't think that's on the table um, politically in DPS right now. And and even some of the, um, you know, uh, parents I spoke to who, um, uh, you know, are sort of caught in this, um, they don't even support ending school choice um, because, you know, they say, well, then if I wanted to send my child, if I thought my neighborhood school was was bad and I wanted to send my child across the city, I still want that option. And so I don't think that's on the table. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Melanie Asmar is a reporter for the education website Chalkbeat. She recently wrote about gentrification and its effect on schools in some Denver neighborhoods. Families are choosing to opt out of uh, local classrooms and send their children elsewhere. You can find a link to her story at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court had its eye on the future when it ruled in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case Monday. The court ducked the larger question of whether religious beliefs can eclipse serving gay customers. But justices hinted at, quote, some future controversy involving facts similar to these. In short, this isn't over. Other cases are already in the legal pipeline from Washington, Oregon, and Colorado. And we're going to talk about these cases. Jim Oleski is an associate law professor at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon, and he specializes in religion and the law. And Jim, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's start with a case involving Arlene's Flowers, a case out of Washington State. I understand it's quite far along. Is that true? That's correct. A petition for review was filed last year with the Supreme Court shortly after uh, the court had granted review in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The court held that petition until this week and then on the same day it decided the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, it scheduled a um, consideration, I should say, of the Arlene's Flowers case at its private conference tomorrow. So we should know relatively soon whether or not the court is going to grant review in that case or deny review. If it denies review, the Washington Supreme Court decision would stand. Okay, so we should explore what the Arlene's Flowers case is. Yeah. So unlike the Colorado case, and you also mentioned the case here in Oregon, the case out of Washington state involves a florist, not a baker. But the underlying legal claims that she is making are the same as the ones in the Colorado case. Uh, First, she's arguing that it violates her free speech rights to require her to provide a floral arrangement for a same-sex wedding because it would be forcing her to express a position that she opposes. And she is also arguing that requiring her under state law to provide uh, the service for a same-sex wedding would violate her religious beliefs. So she's making two First Amendment claims, one under the free speech clause, one under the free exercise clause, just like uh, Mr. Phillips did in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And tell us where the case stands now. The most recent ruling was from the state Supreme Court, correct? 
That's absolutely correct. A unanimous ruling uh, rejecting both the free speech argument and the free exercise argument, which of course is also what the Colorado Court of Appeals had done in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The the critical difference between the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and the Arlene's Flowers case out of Washington State is that there are there's no allegation of decision maker bias in the Washington State case, and that's ultimately what ended up deciding the Masterpiece case in the Supreme Court of the United States. The court found hostility on behalf of members of the commission. There are no claims like that involved in the Washington case, so it would be a cleaner vehicle if the court did want to address the broader legal issues. If the court wants to address the, <laughs> the broader issues, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Is this, that, is this a Supreme Court that wants to do that? Is this a court that wants to do this slice by slice, uh, forgive the cake metaphor? Uh, and might this be a, a court that has its eye to the possibility that some justices retire, that the makeup of the court changes, and that perhaps it's able to rule with a conservative, a larger conservative majority. So I think people are talking about all of those dynamics that you mentioned. On the first one, in terms of doing things step by step, recall that's precisely what happened with same-sex marriage recognition. The court first took the Defense of Marriage Act case, which was just about a federal law um, denying recognition. Then two years later, it took the broader issue of all state laws that banned same-sex marriage and struck them down. But it didn't do it in the first case. It did it step by step. Likewise, we might be seeing a similar thing here. The court first decides the Colorado case on a a narrow fact-specific issue and maybe a year, two years down the road, the court decides the broader legal issues. On, on your second question, you know, there's a lot of speculation out there as to who may retire from the court. We'll know shortly uh, whether or not any of the justices will announce the retirement at the end of this term. But there really is no way to know. And I, I suspect the justices aren't, you know, going to be deciding whether to grant review in Arlene's flowers on that basis. Okay. A lot of eyes, I think, on Justice Ginsburg, on Justice Kennedy as well. And Justice Kennedy has played a major role in some of these cases related to gay marriage, for instance, and this tension between uh, access to businesses and religious freedom. All right, let's get to another potential case in the pipeline. Uh, And that's one from here in Colorado as well. That's 303 Creative versus Alenis. And this involves a graphic designer. Absolutely. And so what's interesting about this case and some of the other cases that are in the pipeline as well is that if the court eventually reaches the broader free speech question in these cases, one thing that some advocates have urged the court to do is distinguish between different types of business. So – Two prominent First Amendment scholars filed a brief in Masterpiece Cake Shop saying that wedding photographers, musicians, freelance writers are inherently expressive and they should have the right to refuse to provide their services for same-sex weddings, whereas limousine drivers and caterers and hotels are not inherently expressive and they shouldn't have the right. Those two scholars put Masterpiece Cake Shop on the side of the limousine drivers and the hotel owners and the caterers as not having a right to refuse services. 
But nobody knows, one, if the court is willing to make those kinds of fine distinctions and two, if it does, where it will draw the line. But a case like the one you mentioned involving graphic design might be a type of case in which the argument is made to the court, this is the case in which you should draw that line. Because it's custom websites, graphics that might celebrate a ceremony. Right. So the the argument in that brief I mentioned that urges distinguishing is that some types of businesses, inherently what they do is creative. So again, wedding photographers and freelance writers, whereas others, like say the limousine driver, they may do some things sometimes that are expressive, like put the just married language in the back of the limo or have the cans you know, on strings behind the limo to celebrate the wedding. But most of what limo drivers do isn't expressive. So we might say – the court might say that's not an inherently expressive business whereas freelance writing is. And of course, the the attorneys for the graphic designers will try to put their case on the side of the freelance writers. Uh, The attorneys for the couples will try to put the case on the side of caterers and limousine drivers. Again, I should... I should emphasize it's not clear that the court is going to be willing though to try to slice things like that and make distinctions between different types of businesses in that way. Fascinating. But that's the difference really between this Colorado case, 303 Creative being a graphic designer and potentially the Jack Phillips case, which the court has already heard, a cake designer. And let's get to that case from your state, Oregon, that could get to wider questions we're talking about here. Uh, how does it relate? So the the Oregon case, like the Washington case, like the Colorado cases, raises those two same basic big picture legal issues, free speech and free exercise of religion. One thing though that is in the Oregon case that isn't in the Washington case is there is a claim that the labor commissioner here in Oregon was biased uh, against the, the bakery owners. It's a different type of bias claim than the one made in Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's a claim that the labor commissioner prejudged the case as opposed to a claim that he had hostility towards religion. So it's not clear that the bias holding in Masterpiece Cake Shop will control the Oregon case. But I'm sure that the attorneys for the bakery here in Oregon will try to use the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision to to argue their case here in the Supreme Court of Oregon. In Oregon, it's sweet cakes by Melissa. And what you're saying is that it's it's not entirely a clean case, uh, to use your words from earlier. Yeah, the the one out of Washington really is the cleanest vehicle right now if the court wanted to decide the pure legal issues of do you have as a a business owner a First Amendment right to refuse services uh, for same-sex weddings. The Washington case is the cleanest vehicle out there right now. How soon might we know whether the U.S. Supreme Court takes on that quote-unquote clean case? As early as Monday. So we could get an order list uh, on Monday that includes whether or not the court is going to deny or grant review in the Washington Arlene's Flowers case. That said, um, there could be a dissent written from whatever decision is made, and, and that might drag things out a little longer. Okay, Jim Oleski, associate law professor at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in religion and the law. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Denver artist Travis Hetman is obsessed with musician Tom Waits. He's declared every Tuesday Tom Waits Tuesday. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf finds out why. It may surprise you, but Travis Hetman says the first time he heard Tom Waits, he wasn't exactly impressed. 
as a young punk rock kid. Hedman was about 14 when he was listening to a punk rock compilation from the 90s called Punkorama, and it had a wait song on it. And I remember just hearing that and thinking that that just, this guy sounds really weird. I'll just skip this song. That song was Waits' 1999 hit Big in Japan from his album Mule Variations. Big in Japan. Big in Japan. Now that's like one of my favorite songs in existence, but at the time, it is funny to think back all those years that I was listening to this weird, gravelly voice and thought, don't care for that. It was Waits' 11th album, Rain Dogs. That was the gateway for Hetman. And then that just blew the doors open. Hetman was in a Minneapolis band then, and his bandmate gave him a copy of Rain Dogs. This was years after his initial tepid introduction. Hetman says listening to that record was transportive. But his obsession with weights was, quote, a slow burn. Really what does it is getting to know the entire length of this artist's career and seeing, like, oh my gosh, this person is constantly reinventing himself as an artist. And really it's like the variety and progression of his total scope. Hetman is drawn to what he sees as Waits' masterful blending of darkness and tenderness. You get further and further into this hole with Tom Waits. Like, the more you listen to it, the more you realize how brilliant it is from a poetry perspective. These days, Hetman can point to a lot of his artwork that literally has Tom Waits in it. Waits first showed up in a drawing about five years ago. Hetman says he had the 1941 Orson Welles classic Citizen Kane on his mind. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. He then found a photo of Waits as a kid. I just instantly had the image in my head of Citizen Kane propaganda poster, but instead of Kane, it's Tom Waits as a child as if some movement had begun to uh, try to get Tom into office as a child. (laughs) It's just one of those weird, really strange ideas. I just drew it instead of thinking about it too much. That inspired him to create Tom Waits Tuesday. He posts a Waits drawing on his Instagram every Tuesday. The first person to call dibs gets to buy it, and sometimes they sell within seconds. Hetman has sold this art to people all over the country. Hetman says he's never heard from Waits. There's no one I'd rather hear from or have the chance to like run into. But I don't know if I'd want it to be because I've been like doing drawings related to him. You'd, you'd want to run into Tom Waits like randomly on the streets. The Denver artist promised he'd let us know if Waits does ever reach out. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. You can see photos of Hetman's work and learn about the artistic obsessions of other Coloradans at CPR.org. You can also see an exhibition of Hetman's Tom Waits-inspired artwork at Leon Gallery in Denver through June 12th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.